Well, good morning. Thank you, Wagi Hakim, for that reading in Arabic. And thank you all for being here today. Welcome to River Oaks. Welcome to those of you joining us online. It is so great to have you with us today. Before we get into the passage that Wagi just read for us, I'd like to take a moment and uh, share with you a brief, some brief thoughts about our vision frame. You'll see our vision frame on the screen. And uh, I think one of the best ways to understand who we are as a church and who we hope to be is by getting to understand something about our vision frame. I think of it as a window frame through which you might look into the future. And in the future, we have what we call our vision 2025, a picture of what we hope prayerfully, by God's grace, our church will look like in the year 2025. But I'd like to call your attention today to the left side of the frame, the values and one in particular, generous-hearted. We aspire to be a church that is generous-hearted, one that is focused on increasingly giving to help meet the needs of the needy, the spiritually needy, as well as those who are materially needy. I've always felt like our church had a responsibility. Ever since we began, a responsibility to those less fortunate. As we all know, we live in one of the most affluent countries in the world, and our church happens to be located in a relatively affluent part of our region, of our county. And we always felt like God would want us to increasingly give to the needs of needy people, spiritually and materially. So when we began our church in 1999 as a symbolic gesture, we wrote our first check to, to missions, a ministry that was uh, happening in Cuba at that particular time, but with this in mind that as our church grew and as our budget grew, we would give increasingly to God's work around the world. And when I say increasingly, I'm not just talking about as a fixed percent of our budget, but that that percentage would increase. We began our church with a, a commitment to give 10% of our budget beyond our walls to local and uh, international missions. But that has been increasing so that our vision 2025 reads, uh, at least part of it reads, as you'll see on the next slide on the screen. Spiritual formation at River Oaks is overflowing with generosity that enables the church to give over $500,000 annually to global and national missions, local ministries, and church planting. We're not there yet, but we're getting much closer very, very quickly. Now, our, our general budget is, is presently about $2.75 million. So as you can see, we are aspiring to increase the percentage that we are giving. Why would we do that? Because I think this is consistent with a biblical understanding of stewardship. To whom much has been given, much also shall be required. And I think this pertains to us as a church if we really want to be generous hearted. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness to our church and your giving that is enabling us to make progress. I think we're going to be at this point before 2025. And uh, I want to focus on that value today because it relates to the scripture passage that we're going to be looking at in Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> we're actually going to look at two passages. They are tied together by Jesus' emphasis on our handling of wealth, our handling of money. They deal with wealth and related worry about financial things. 
Waki just read the first block of teaching that Jesus gave in Luke 12, 13 to 21. And the setting was this. Jesus had been teaching the crowds, and he'd been teaching some pretty heavy things spiritually in Luke chapter 12. He had said, if you acknowledge me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge you before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the uh, Son of God. The angels of God, rather. He said, if you speak a word against the Son of Man, you'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. These are heavy things. And in the midst of this, a man calls out from the crowd and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Can you imagine that? It's like a kid saying, tell my brother to share his toys. How inappropriate and out of place. Jesus responds that he's not called to arbitrate family disputes over inheritances, but rather to proclaim the gospel. His mission was to seek and to save the lost, but addressing the covetousness in the man's heart, Jesus turned to make it a teaching moment, and he gave a warning, and it's one that we should take heed to. A warning to guard against covetousness, knowing that material wealth is not the essence of life. He says in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. The word Jesus uses that is translated be on your guard would be the same word used in the Greek language for a person who is guarding a prison an alertness, a watchfulness. Be careful about your life because wealth has a subtle ability to turn to covetousness, greed, and to take hold of the human heart. And then Jesus makes a point. He calls us to caution, alertness, to avoid the subtle pull of greed. But then he notes something that we really, I think, need to take, take hold of. When he says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That is a powerful statement to reflect upon. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions or your wealth. We human beings have a tendency to evaluate people by their wealth and consider them more important if they have more. But God is not like that. He sees the heart. Now, in Jesus' parable, he goes on after giving this warning to... Uh, to tell a very short parable about a wealthy man, a rich man. He was rich to begin with, but he had a particularly good year. His land produced plentifully, abundantly. And so he said, what am I going to do with all this abundance? My barns won't hold all of this stuff. So I'll build bigger barns and accumulate and accumulate and accumulate for myself. And then he dies. And God actually called him a fool. Not because of his wealth, but because of how he handled his wealth, or rather because of how he did not handle his wealth. And then Jesus applies the parable to everybody in the crowd when he says this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Be on your guard, he says. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, in the next section of Luke chapter 12, Jesus continues his 
teaching on our attitude toward wealth by calling us to guard against anxiety. But this time Luke notes that he's specifically addressing his disciples. And he says to them, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Jesus reminds us that God even takes care of ravens. And you know, ravens were unclean animals in Jewish dietary laws. And Jesus said, God takes care of them. God even cares for them. He provides for them. In fact, God sustains all of creation. God sustains creation. He knows our need. Jesus goes on to say, if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus addresses covetousness about wealth. Now he addresses anxiety about wealth. He's calling here in this section for trust that he will provide for our needs. And then Jesus comes to a key verse when he says, seek his kingdom, seek first God's kingdom, and these things, the things you need, will be added to you. They'll be given to you. So Jesus calls us to guard against covetousness and then to guard against anxiety. And as we reflect back on these two warnings, to beware, to guard against covetousness, guard against anxiety, Jesus gives us, I think, a solution to the struggle that we have guarding against these things. And the first is found in the parable about the rich man. The first is to look beyond yourself in your planning and use of wealth. Now, again, Jesus said there was a certain rich man whose land produced plentifully. He had a good year. The rain was good. The soil was good. The crops were abundant. He had a fantastic year. And so what was his thinking about the great year he had? He thought to himself, what shall I do? Notice the recurrence of the word I or my. Somebody said this rich man had an I problem and that he focused only on himself. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. There's no mention of God as his provider whatsoever. The God who gave the rains, who allowed the land to produce plentifully. There's no mention of God. There's no thought to given to the needs of others. It was not wrong for the man to prosper. Anybody who has a farm wants to prosper, and they should. We hope they have good years. Anybody who starts a business wants to make a profit and prosper. That's the reason for starting the business. It was not wrong for the man to prosper. The land produced plentifully. God allowed that prosperity. A key verse that we must hold on to when we think about wealth is found in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18. Here's what the Lord said. He said, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Remember him. Remember him. 
It is he who gives you the power to get wealth. The rich man's problem was not that he prospered. The rich man's problem was that, in the words of Jesus, he was not rich toward God. What should he have done? He should have said, Lord, thank you. I acknowledge you as the source of my prosperity, and I give you the glory. This has come from your hands. He should have expressed gratitude to God. And then secondly, he should have asked this question. Why has the Lord so prospered me? Why has God done this? What does he intend by prospering me in this way? But this rich man, there was no thought of God, and there was only thinking of himself. There was no thought given to the needs of others. And so God says to him, you fool, you fool, you're going to die tonight. And then what's going to happen to all that stuff? Look beyond yourself in your planning and use of wealth to the God who has provided this and to the needs of others and ask, why has he prospered me so? Secondly, not only look beyond yourself, but look beyond this life in your planning and use of wealth. In Jesus' parable, he says, God says to the rich man, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Jesus is making the point here, you will not take any of it with you. All the big barns you filled, they're staying right here. They're not going to go with you. Whose will they be? And then Jesus gives this fairly strong statement, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Material wealth is temporal. That it is, is, it is only temporary for this life, pertains to this life. We cannot take it with us. Um, the Apostle Paul made this very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7 when he said, and he was dealing with the topic of money here, um, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can take nothing out brought nothing with us into this world, and materially, we will take nothing out of this world. That's why Jesus says in his parable to the rich man, now, who's, who's all this stuff going to belong to? You're not going to take it with you. Now, in the second block of teaching we looked at, the one in which Jesus called us to uh, guard against anxiety, he says this in Luke 12, verses 33 and verse 34, to his disciples, when he tells them not to be anxious about their lives, what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. What does Jesus mean by that? Money bags that don't grow old? People kept their wealth in money bags. A treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, that is, it does not end, it does not expire, does not deteriorate, it is not stolen or taken away. What's he talking about? Money is temporal. It's temporary. It pertains to this world only. But Jesus is making the point that our money can be used in meeting the needs of others in doing the work of God's kingdom, in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, 
in such a way that the benefits can extend into eternity. Literally, taking this temporal wealth that we have and using it in such a way as to have treasure in heaven. We can't take it with us, but we can use it in this life in such a way as to provide benefits of eternal significance and value. The benefit of being a generous-hearted person goes with us into eternity. Why did Jesus focus so much on wealth, on money? The reason is found in the last verse of this section, Luke 12, verses 13 to 34, where Jesus says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is concerned about the heart. Stewardship, a right understanding of our management and handling of material wealth, is not so much about money as it is our hearts. That our hearts be free from covetousness. That our hearts be free from anxiety. That we trust God as our provider. That we seek first His kingdom that we see the needs of others, that we live with eternal values, that we acknowledge God as the provider of everything we have and he entrusts some of it into our care. And so as we reflect on these teachings of Jesus about wealth, I'd like to raise one question by way of personal application for us this morning. And the question is this, how can I become increasingly free from covetousness and from worry about money? Greed and anxiety. Two things I would suggest. Number one, regularly express your gratitude to God for what you have. Whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. Be thankful. Don't compare yourself with others who, who have more or less than you have. Be grateful for what you have and thank the Lord often and for everything. A lack of thankfulness to God leads to spiritual decline. The verse you see on the screen comes from Romans chapter 1. Paul wrote this verse talking about human beings who knew God but didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him and, and then became futile in their thinking and their futilist, foolish hearts were darkened. The implication of this verse is that a lack of thankfulness in a, to God and acknowledgement of who God is leads to spiritual decline, not only in individuals, but also in societies. Positively, though, the Apostle Paul calls us to live this way in Ephesians 5 and verse 20, when he says, we should be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way a believer lives. We acknowledge that everything we have comes from God. The opportunities we have you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, as Deuteronomy 8.18 says. The very air we breathe, the opportunities we have, all this comes to us from God, and we acknowledge him, and we give him thanks. One of the cures for greed and anxiety about wealth is an attitude of gratitude to God, giving him thanks. There is no one more generous-hearted than the Lord our God 
himself. God has given to us in a way that no one could ever give. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You talk about generous hearted, generosity. This is the very nature of God to give. In his longest teaching on giving, material giving in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and chapters 9, two entire chapters of one of his letters given to the topic of handling material wealth, giving. And he ends this block of teaching with this remarkable statement. He'd been talking about giving for two chapters, and then all of a sudden he ends his teaching with this verse. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He's talking about the gift of Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God the Son, who took human flesh upon himself and was born as a baby and lived among us and then allowed himself to be taken and spit upon and flogged and mocked and nailed to a cross and there bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus, who took our place. This is the generous-hearted nature of God. Now, I stress this because all of our monetary material giving should ultimately <clears throat> be an act of worship conveying gratitude to God for his great gift. <clears throat> that is why Paul ends his longest teaching on giving by saying this, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We cannot even express the depth of the generosity of our God. And knowing that should frame our attitude toward our own giving. So number one, gratitude to God. Number two, giving. Gratitude and giving are the two best ways I know to break the power of covetousness and of anxiety about wealth. I love Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, it contains some of the best known verses in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Less well known are verses 9 and 10 which say this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Well, the rich man in our, our parable today, his, his uh, barns were overflowing for sure, but he didn't honor the Lord, did he? He didn't honor the Lord with his wealth. The first fruits uh, giving concept from the Old Testament is simply acknowledging that God has provided everything and so the, the giving of first fruits to him was, was an acknowledgement of worship that he was the source of all, that he was the provider of all. It was an act of worship. It's uh, in accord with Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Historically, a helpful principle for worshiping God with our first fruits has been what has been often referred to as the tithe. The word tithe simply means a tenth. It first appears in the Bible in Genesis chapter 14 when 
Abraham himself is returning with all these spoils from battle and he encounters uh, a priest named Melchizedek and he gives him a tithe of this wealth. It's a way of worship, uh, tithing, first fruits. It's a way of worshiping God as the source of all. Later, tithing would become an actual law for the Israelites. And um, I, I need to say this because I think a lot of Christians feel like tithing is some kind of a law for us today. I do not believe tithing is a law for Christians, but rather a principle. I think of it as a good starting place for helpful stewardship. We have today at our resource center some little leaflets on the topic of tithing. If you want to dig into that and learn a little more about it, you can pick one of those up um, when you uh, go by the resource center today. But again, I don't think tithing is a law for believers. I, I think there's a more important New Testament principle that guides us as believers. And I think that's the principle of stewardship. It's the principle that God owns it all. He entrusts some of it. And our giving is, is not to fulfill some kind of a law so that if we don't fulfill this law, we get punished. We're not really saved. We're not really Christians if we don't do this. There's no binding law on Christians that earns our salvation. Jesus has earned our salvation. And the great prevalent law of the New Testament is the law of love, love for God, love for others. However, it makes sense to me that if God called folks in the Old Testament to worship him with their first fruits as a way of acknowledging him and worshiping him, how much more should we as followers of Jesus Christ who have received God's inexpressible gift not only worship God with our first fruits but acknowledge that when we are blessed with a great abundance, God calls us to a lifestyle of stewardship. And we should be saying, God, it's all come from you. Now, why have you blessed me so? What do you want to do with it? Stewardship. Gratitude and giving are the two best ways I can think of to help keep our hearts free from covetousness and anxiety and focused on the Lord and on his kingdom. Let me pause here and just invite you to pray with me about these things. Father, we come in the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the all-surpassing, inexpressible gift of your Son. I want to first pray today for any person here who does not truly know the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've been in church, you've thought about God, you felt maybe you, you were a Christian because you've, because you've come to church, but if you're truthful, he is not really the Lord of your life. And today you recognize that he is calling for the throne of your heart. And if that is you, I would invite you to say a, sim a prayer, simple prayer, like this. You can repeat it right where you are after me if it truly expresses what you believe. You can use these words. Dear God, <clears throat> I do believe 
that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. And you raised him from the dead to be my Savior. Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I repent of them and I turn to you. Forgive me. Save me. Be my Lord. Make me your devoted follower and take the throne of my heart this day. I ask this in your great name. Amen. Amen.